are about to hear my conversation with Chief Fixed Income Strategist Dustin Reed. We talk all about the most recent meetings at the Federal Reserve, Bank of Japan, and European Central Banks, as well as talk about some of the trades that they're implementing within the portfolios. I hope you enjoy. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Information relating to investment approaches or individual investments should not be construed as advice or endorsement. Listeners should seek professional advice for their situation. Welcome to the McKenzie Investments Podcast. My name is Matthew Schnurr, and I'm back with our Chief Fixed Income Strategist, Dustin Reed. Dustin, let's jump right into it. The Federal Reserve uh, had a meeting yesterday. The conclusion of the meeting was a 25 basis point hike. Uh, which was largely expected uh, by markets. Uh, I'd love to get your take on both uh, the, the hike itself as well as what your expectations are going forward. Yeah, for sure. Thanks very much for having me back on the podcast. So yeah, so the Fed did 25 yesterday as the market generally expected. Uh, I think the market was pricing 22 or 23 basis points going into the meeting. So it was essentially fully priced almost all the way. Obviously, the regional banking issue in the U.S., um, was causing a causing a bit of consternation um, and probably keeping it from becoming a full a full 25 or 25 plus in terms of market pricing but we did we did get that and um, yeah I, I would say in you know if I were to summarize the uh, the meeting in one line or at least the fed's tone in the meeting in one line uh, you know from March of last year through yesterday uh, when the fed started its rate hiking cycle it needed a reason uh, not to hike um, right. Uh, because it needed to catch up on on the inflationary side and obviously a very very strong labor market and now i think with yesterday uh going forward they need uh, a reason to hike so that that switch has been flipped so to speak it doesn't mean that uh they can't hike again or they won't hike again but i think the bar is a little bit higher and that was kind of the message i was giving to the team um at the end of the press conference uh yesterday that the uh you know kind of that that one line anecdote that now there 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 needs to be a reason a reason to hike and that reason could very well still be there um right just the way the dates fall which is kind of interesting the next meeting the next fomc meeting is june 14th um and it is a forecast meeting for the fed but just given the way the dates fall um with the May 3rd meeting that just that just happened, there are two non-farm payroll prints and there are two CPI prints between the meetings. So that those are obviously both very top tier data points. And there's other things going on too, of course. Um, but th- those are kind of generally the big the big ones, and you get you get two of each. So that that doesn't always happen, uh, but it will be happening now. So I mean, to state the obvious, even if um, or I should say, if uh, the CPI numbers continue to come in hot, particularly I would say core services, um, core CPI x uh, core services CPI x shelter, and then just the general overall tone from the non-farm payroll data, uh, you know that that would that, that would cause I think some market participants to suggest that the Fed is not not quite done. And obviously we'll have some Fed speak as the Fed comes out of uh, its quiet period later this week and going into the uh, into the June meeting. So that's pretty, it'll be very interesting. And Powell said as much yesterday in terms of, you know, we, we are watching, or we are watching the data and obviously right. he's watching the data. They're all watching the data, but it's very, very data dependent. They really don't want to provide a lot of forward guidance and they, I don't want to say they don't know, but 
the, the, the inflation and the labor market data could surprise in, in either direction, to be fair. And then, of course, you've got the banking, the regional banking issue happening, I wouldn't even say in the background, but obviously happening in parallel. Sure. And you have the debt ceiling issue, obviously, also kind of grinding um, someone in the background, although I think it's a little more a little more front and center now than it was maybe a month ago because this X date uh, looks to be happening potentially in early June. So the Fed's obviously managing or at least trying to manage all of that and put all those things through its own, you know, all its own models or, you know, its own sausage maker and see and seeing what comes out, what comes out the other side. I mean, so our view on Fed terminal rate has been uh, five and a quarter to five and a half since, um, if I have my dates correct, February 24th, which was the date we got the January PCE data late in February. And we had been at five to five and a quarter, um, since early November through to the end of uh, through the end of uh, February, so we are now with the Fed's move yesterday. We are now at five to five and a quarter, so we're there, and also matching the Fed's dots, so to speak, in the most recent, actually the most technically two uh, recent uh, forecast um, uh, documents, the SEPs from December, and then it basically got repeated in uh, March after the SVB, um, you know, banking issue. Right. So. Uh, so I'm, you know, I'm still, I still kind of have one in there and I guess technically it's for June and we'll see, I mean, if the data comes in a little weak, then I, you know, I'm probably going to be wrong and then I'll have to come out and uh, that forecast I have to amend. And if that, um, if the data comes in hot, then maybe it'll turn out to be correct. I mean, I, I've generally been, I would say particularly in 21 and early 22, quite a bit more hawkish than consensus on inflation. Right. And probably a little bit, still probably more hawkish than consensus, but probably less, probably less of a gap, so to speak, now versus where I was in you know, back half of 21 and early 22. So I do, and we've talked about this, I think a lot on these podcasts, I do think that Inflation, not only in, in the U.S. but also here domestically in Canada and, and in Europe and you know a few other places, remains very structural, and particularly on the core side. And I think we've you know we've moved from this what I would call leveling up to sticky to structural, and I think we're very much in the early part of the structural stage. And so I wonder how these central banks are going to manage that because they're in theory looking at at least having a at a minimum a very very serious discussion around stopping or pausing and these inflation levels are well above uh stated uh, right. preferred sure. target ranges so how does you know how do they man- manage manage that of course and then of course the ultimate question is how do markets react and then how you know what's price and how do we how do we generate alpha you know off the back of that so i'm obviously looking at um at all of that now powell uh now powell started the press conference off i think very very well and kind of tried to avoid the the obvious questions he was going to get which is are you you know is the bank pausing and he 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 definitely stick handled that pretty well but there was a question towards the end of the uh press conference where he went a little bit off probably a little bit off script and he suggested at least some picked up the idea that he suggested that uh that they could, that they could be at the point where they are going to pause, where the Fed is going to pause, and the market has at least fixed income market, um, you know, in kind of my primary market has has definitely jumped all over that, and right. you would expect to see, um, you would expect to see front end rates lower um, by by more than the back end, and then some people would expect the back end to be higher, some people would expect the back end to be lower, but net net, you would expect a steepening bias or a steepening uh, trade and kind of 
being in vogue on the back of that, um, which we can talk about later if you want. But that's that's generally been one of the the key views I think for for myself um, for the last little bit heading into uh, heading into the second half of the year. But yeah, that's generally the Fed um, the Fed view from here. Uh, there's a lot of uh, a very interesting six weeks ahead of us. I think going into the June right. meeting, which is a forecast meeting. One, one last thing I guess I would say on the Fed. If we were to get a June hike, which would take Fed funds from, uh, which would take Fed funds to five and a quarter, five and a half from the current five to five and a quarter, one would presume that because it's a forecast meeting, you'd have to see that median dot, the dot plot, that median dot for 23 come higher by, I would assume, 25 basis points. I mean, it doesn't have to do that, but it, it probably would do that. So let's assume that the Fed is let's assume that the Fed is going in June, which I'm not necessarily saying, but let's assume that it is by 25. To get that dot higher, to state the obvious, you you need to have the votes, or in this case, the the forecasts all move higher. Are the votes there? Are are there enough people at this point, given what we know about the economy and how things are slowing a little bit? Obviously, what we know about the banking stuff, and then you've got the debt ceiling over overhang into early June. Are you going to have enough people that are going to really have the courage or the the foresight uh, to want to raise their median estimate for 23? And I think that's a really interesting way of looking at it, just from an accounting. Uh, mechanical perspective. I mean, forget the fundamental stuff for a sec, um, although it's impossible to do, but just to put it to the side for a sec, from an accounting perspective, you have to have the votes. You have to have the people that are going to push for that to go higher. And I, sitting here today, I'm not convinced that there are enough people that are going to do that. The data over the next you know, six weeks could, could absolutely change that. But right. as we sit here today, I'm not convinced that there are enough people that would get that get that over the line. So, yeah, so that's kind of the, uh, the Fred overview there. Maybe just uh, one or uh, two follow-up questions. Um, you referenced regional banking uh, and the issues there, and then uh, talking about the Fed being data dependent as always in the, the two prints of uh, payroll and CPI that they'll yep. have to, to look at. How do you think that they're thinking about balancing those two issues? Uh, because uh, obviously interest rates higher uh, puts more pressure on the regional bank uh, issue, yep. but then if you have hot employment, hot um CPI or not even hot, but like obviously to your point, well elevated over their target. So how are yeah. they balancing those two? I think it's really tough. I mean, at the at the end of the day, it's one economy and everything obviously comes together in yeah, the end. Sure. But from a policy perspective, and you've heard a few people say it, uh, particularly particularly the hawks who are, you know, obviously pushing ahead to try and quell inflation. You know, these are two these are two separate and distinct issues, and you know we can manage the inflation side while somewhat separately managing the regional, uh, you know, the regional banking issue, whether whether it's a crisis or not. Um, so I think the Fed spends a fair a fair bit of time discussing it. The Fed obviously also has a regulatory component to it too. It's not just right. about it's not just about monetary policy. So it's obviously. You know, f- focused on that, and 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 there's a vice, and you know, because of um, because of Frank Dodd, there is the Frank Dodd Act from you know as a result of the 08, 09 financial crisis. There's you know Congress enacted legislation to have a vice chair of supervision, you know, and that is now Vice Chair Barr, who of course has a permanent vote on monetary policy, but his or, or that position's job, his his position, his job right now is clearly to focus on 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 regulation uh, first, banking regulation first. So. Uh, so they, they definitely spend a lot of time on it, and they have a whole 
obviously a whole crew of people that are that are that are focused on that. But I think you know, I think the Fed would say its primary mandate is a dual mandate given by Congress, which is um, price stability, and the Fed views that as core PCE on an annual basis at or very close to two percent on a on a medium to long term basis, while continuing to foster full employment. I mean, that is effectively the the the, the official mandate for the Fed, and. Um, I mean, there there are degrees of freedom there, right? And right now, from an inflation perspective, you you are missing that target not not by a little, but by by a lot. And yeah. there are there are people at the Fed that are clearly concerned about not not meeting that mandate, and would it would would supersede that over the banking side. And there are clearly people at the Fed that would say the the opposite that oh wow, this banking issue is. Is a major major problem, and uh, it doesn't really matter where inflation is because if we don't clean up the banking problem, or at least don't ease up and allow the banking problem to somewhat self-clear or organically clear up with it with a, a decent amount of time, then you know what's the point? Because at the end of the day, it all comes together, and it's just not, you know, it's it's a it's a significant problem. So I think the 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 you know the Fed is is. Uh, Obviously, in a in a challenging spot. I mean, to state the obvious, we had SVB um, and I and 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 Signature, I believe, um, you know, right before the Fed meeting in March, they hiked, and we had FRC and you know the the Pac West news was coming out pretty. Right. I mean, it was already out there, but pretty fast and furious on Tuesday of this week. And the Fed meetings are two days. So that was the first day of the Fed meeting on Wednesday. We got the second day in the decision. So they're probably watching that PAC West news on Tuesday and somewhat real time are getting updates and thinking, oh boy, this is uh this is not 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 ideal <laughs> to put it to put it mildly. So you know, but they hiked again, obviously. So I think, you know, now that the Fed is at five to five and a quarter and it essentially is at its target it can somewhat afford, I mean, given what we know, the data could change, like we've already talked about. But given what we know, we've kind of got to the point where we said we would get to. And unless there's a reason to change, let's kind of stop and take a look around here. And um, you know, if things obviously deteriorate on the on the banking side, then they would clearly, uh, maybe not clearly, but I, th- I think they would they would cut rates probably quickly and aggressively, and they obviously instituted the you know the program, changed the program, the BTFP program uh, in right. March, sure. and you know allowed allowed you know and, and that and that's part of the other side of it, right? Kind of beyond the you know full employment and prices, it's more the well, let's you know we have we have this, and so that should man that should manage the banking side, and then we have to obviously we've got our mandate, we've got to do this on kind of the prices and full employment side. So it's right. tricky. There are no easy answers. There's no. I mean, every playbook is different. I mean, I could say there's no playbook, but we've obviously been through crises before, and um, you know, but the Fed learned a lot, I think, from 08, um, and I think the Fed learned a lot from 2020 as well with 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 you know the with COVID. And the pandemic, and uh, I think if things got really ugly really fast, uh, I think the Fed would react really, really quickly. Uh, say what you want about doing the last two 25 basis point hikes in March and May, but I think the Fed would grab the playbook from 2020 and start uh, cutting rates ex- right. exceptionally quickly here. Great context, Dustin. Uh, just one quick uh, follow-up as well on uh, your reference to debt ceiling a few times. Yep. Uh, in my mind, the debt ceiling is... Uh, largely a political issue um, where there 
has to be some sort of compromise uh, between the Republicans and, and Democrats to fulfill yep. their commitments effectively. What, how does that impact the Fed th- uh, thinking? Like, draw, make that connection for me. Yeah, so it's it's a great question. I think um, I mean the Fed's obviously watching it, and the Fed doesn't want to get involved in pol- in in fiscal policy or government, you know, like, like the ad, like the White House policy per se. Right. I mean, but it's obviously, it's obviously impactful. I mean, anything that affects financial conditions, the Fed has wrapped its arms around. So you know, the way I look at the Fed, um, you know, my framework for the Fed, I've probably said this on one or two of the podcasts before, but I call it the, I picture like a juggler juggling four balls in the air. Two of them are the Two of the balls are one are are from are given to them by Congress mandated, and two they basically picked up themselves. So the two from Congress are the ones we obviously talked about, and essentially price stability around two percent using a core PCE measure, and then the second would be full employment and balancing those at the same time. The other two are what I would call keeping financial conditions in check, so not overly dovish and not overly hawkish. Uh, and then the second one that they basically gave themselves, or the fourth one. Uh, would be the global economic outlook, for lack of a better term, because the Fed doesn't necessarily want to go around and say this, and actually goes out of its way to say this publicly. You know, we're we're focused on the U.S. the U.S. citizen and 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 you know managing things for the U.S. economy, which it is. But it also knows, obviously, that it is the biggest central bank in the world. It sure. is you know the global reserve currency of choice with the dollar. It has an outsized role in the financial system, the global financial system, obviously. So it manages those four like those four things in the air at the same time, and it's not easy to kind of keep all those you know all those balls in the air. That's kind of my <laughs> my analogy, which I've had for a long time actually, and I think it's still I think it's still appropriate. So to bring that back to your question. You know the financial conditions part of that. I think is um, you know the debt ceiling wraps into the financial conditions part of that. Obviously, if there's a, a default uh, of by the U.S. Treasury, I mean I, I would assume that that's going to be negative for risk sentiment. It's going to tighten financial conditions sure. uh, quite quite significantly. Um, prob- probably at this point in the cycle, I would say more than the Fed would be comfortable with, but we'd have to see exactly. How that manifested, et cetera, et cetera. So I think the Fed would be concerned, and I mean, on the margin, I would think that it brings in the idea of easing uh, either either larger and or more quickly than maybe you know, some some people expect. I mean, we do have actually I haven't checked in a few hours, and there's been a, a quite a bit of news this morning, but around around seventy uh, around seventy five or eighty basis points going into my eight o'clock meeting this morning, in terms of market pricing for Fed easing for the remainder of twenty twenty three for the remainder of this year, and uh, you know I would expect that number to be a bigger negative number if if there was a default on the on the uh, you know the Treasury decided to default. I mean, and just and just from a mechanics perspective, just to say it since we're here, um, I mean I think something will get done. I mean I think we'll. I I think sure. there'll be something. It'll be eleventh hour, maybe even the eleventh and a half hour. It'll be, it'll be close, and there'll be some consternation. Uh, so, so Treasury and Yellen have uh, Treasury Secretary Yellen has essentially said early June could be as early as June first, and so people are looking at the the date as June first. It could be a little later than that. Um, some people are talking about June seventh as okay. as the big date, the X date. Um, there is uh, the 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 corporate re, the corporate ref, uh, payment tax payments are due June fifteenth. So the way I look at it is, if somehow the the government can, can skid by to June fifteenth, you kind of get a, a leapfrog into August probably. 
because your coffers will be a lot a lot more full. But right. if you can't make it to June 15th, you're probably going to be stuck at some point in the first or second week of of June. So we're seeing a bit of a kink in the in the very very short end the bill the T bill curve uh, the Treasury bill curve. Um, I mean I think a deal will get done. I mean right now we're going to have a big meeting on on May 9th. Um, between the White House and kind of the big four, the um, you know the head of head of the GOP and the and the Democrats for both the Senate and the House, McCarthy somehow was able. The Speaker of the House, Republican, was able to pass a bill last week, uh, right. despite a lot of people suggesting that that may not happen. He just he just squeaked it by. So he actually did manage to present a. I mean, you may not like the you may not like the details of the bill, but he managed sure. to present a clean bill. It wasn't going anywhere in the Senate, and definitely wasn't going anywhere in the White House. So now, now the negotiations really start. I think you're inside four weeks here potentially with the X date, and I th- also importantly the CBO, the uh, Congressional Budget Office, which in theory is supposedly uh, neutral from a political perspective. Importantly to me is also suggesting that the first part of June is probably where the X date is going to be, and that to me carries just as much, if not a little more weight than the Treasury, because it's probably not as uh, politically um, influenced. So right. if if CBO Congressional Budget Office is saying early June, then that's probably the case. For the last month or so, there's been a good there's been a good sized camp saying we'll get to August, and there's been a growing camp saying June. Now with that newish information, which was earlier this week, kind of Monday into Tuesday, it is skewing much more towards uh, the first half of June. So something probably needs to happen politically in the next four weeks here. That's great context. Thank you. Uh, let's turn to the BOJ, Bank of Japan. You've spoken a fair amount, actually, uh, in the past, I don't know, four months or so about uh, Bank of Japan and, and what's happening there. What's the latest uh, out of Bank of Japan? So the Bank of Japan met late uh, late April, and uh, it was the first meeting with the new the new governor, uh, Udia, and, and also a couple new deputy governors, to be fair, which should, should not, not be forgotten. And uh, I think most people expected the bank to really not 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 do anything uh, in terms of tweaking its policy, both from a rates perspective as well as a uh, a yield curve control perspective. Um, and that and that's what we got. Uh, the bank opted not not to do anything. Um, what the bank did do is said that it was going to embark on a, a very long review of its policy and how its policy is. Implementing, or sorry, its policy is impacting um, the economy and kind of its, I wouldn't say unorthodox, but at least non-orthodox policy of having a long-term yield curve control and and negative rates. Obviously, I mean the rate in, right. in Japan is still minus ten basis points. I mean here it's in Canada it's 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 four hundred and fifty basis points, positive four hundred and fifty basis points. So the bank bank of Japan still looks a little bit out of step, even though its its inflation numbers are a little bit lower. They are clearly they are clearly moving higher. But anyway, so the bank bank decided to embark on a, a very long, a year to year and a half um, uh, policy review, which is which is a very which is a very long time. Now, so Udia at the press conference uh, said that it, you know doing this review does not preclude us from moving rates or or change. I think he said changing policy during the review period. So I think. You know, obviously, the first instinct when you see something like that is, oh wow! I mean, the bank's not going to do anything for twelve to eighteen months. It's right. Okay, and, but I, I think he wanted to kind of, kind of obviously suggest that that that's that's not necessarily the case. So, I mean, I step back and I look at Japan and I say, okay, well, 
the policy rate's still minus 10 basis points and look at where most of the rest of the world is. And they still have a yield curve control and their their 10-year bond is capped at 50 basis points in theory. Um, and those those are both those are both quite low. And that needs to that probably needs to normalize. That probably needs to adjust. And we had this really, really interesting statement from one of the new deputy governors, which is why I said what I said a, a second ago around, don't forget about the two new deputy governors. Because one of the new deputy governors about a month ago, maybe three, four weeks ago, said something along the lines of, I'm paraphrasing a bit, but um, I mean, we're going to make a move on we're going to make a move in policy and we're not going to talk when we make a move in policy we're not going to talk about it before and yeah. that got that got a lot of people's attention for for the obvious reason so you know the bank the bank of japan has a tendency historically to surprise uh, and to do things somewhat unexpected you only have to really go back to december to remember that they tweaked right. the yield curve control programs somewhat unexpectedly uh, from uh, the top end ceiling from 25 to 50 basis points and caught caught a lot of people off guard. I mean, we obviously had had that trade on and have had it on for and you know have had it on for a long time. Um, I mean, so that that was great for us. It was a great way to end the year from a macro trade perspective. But sure. um, you know, so I think a lot of people, particularly the leverage money, particularly hedge funds, macro, you know, the big macro funds and the big multi strat funds are. And maybe putting a little too much emphasis on that on that statement from the from the new deputy governor and saying you know any, anything is possible literally anything is possible at any time. My view here, after looking at the the April data, there's a meeting in uh, sorry the April meeting. There's a meeting in June. There's a meeting in July. I think July is my base case here for something to happen. I think we could see a tweak to uh, 75 or even 100 basis points on this on the ceiling of of yield curve control. It would not. It would not surprise me. I think that'll be a fair bit of time since Udea has has taken his seat at at the bank, probably somewhat into the policy review. And uh, I think the domestic inflation data and wages data will continue to move away from the BOJ, i.e. it'll continue to be relatively hot. I mean, not as hot on a relative basis versus Canada, or the U.S., or Europe, but still for Japan, pretty, pretty hot. I mean, we're seeing Tokyo and national CPI data come in consistently higher than the BOJ expects. I think right. one reason why the bank hasn't done anything yet, Bank of Japan, is because their fiscal 24 and now with the April meeting, fiscal 25 for the first time, they continue to see that core, as they would call it, core core inflation is is going to be below their their target. So they're saying, well, it's going to naturally come back. So we don't necessarily need to do anything. But I think the longer inflation and wages continue to be above uh, where uh, where they expect it to be, then those forecasts look look less and less likely. And that's going to be part of the precursor, I think, for the bank to to ease. So you know, with these, watching central banks, it's always about couple of things, right? It's about you know, what what should they do versus what will they do? And I mean, you can say what people should or what banks should do all the time may not get you anywhere. It's really about what they will do. And uh, so we, we obviously spend a lot of time kind of parsing the the language and what they're and what they and what they're saying and what they're not saying. Um, but I, I don't think it would take a lot for the bank to move off. Uh, July's forecast round for the BOJ. The one wrinkle is a few wrinkles, but one other wrinkle that may come up here is there could be a snap election in Japan called in June and happening in July. And depending A, if that happens, and then B, if it does happen, 
how the dates fall. If the if the BOJ meeting for whatever reason in July is during the election period, that would probably negate what I just said. Not not impossible, but I I doubt that the bank would be making what I would view now as significant tweaks to its policy, its yield curve control policy, during an election cycle. So if if it gets called and the election happens before the the July BOJ Bank of Japan meeting date, then it's it's probably still live. If if the if the date is encapsulated by the by the election period, that that at the margin has to take take the take the um, the probability of of something happening at the July meeting at least somewhat lower, maybe materially right. lower. Right. Good. Thanks for that. Um, busy day uh, today. The uh, ECB just uh, had a meeting uh, this morning with comments. What did you take away from the ECB? So the ECB has been behind the curve in in our view. I would say a lot of people, for a lot of people in the market as well, they started late. I don't think they started till mid mid last year. It looked it looked late, and they are they are slower than a lot of the other central banks, particularly here domestically in Canada and Fed. Um, so with the ECB increase today, they they hiked by 25, which was generally expected. So here's an example of what was uh, more. So 28 or 29 basis points was actually priced for the bank today because there was some some talk of doing 50. Uh, so small probability of doing 50, but they did they did 25, which was generally generally expected. So that took the um, the bottom end of their of their so-called corridor, which is the deposit rate, from three to three and a quarter percent. So you know, Fed is now at f- five to five and a quarter. A bank here is at four and a half, and then the ECB is at three and a quarter, just for right. you know to level set, just to kind of give an idea of where you know everyone is in the cycle. And the Bank of Japan's at minus ten. <laughs> so <laughs> so yeah, so that, those are kind of the big four that we spend, at least from the G10 perspective, that we spend a lot of a lot of time on. So. Press conference was quite interesting. Um, uh, Lagarde effectively said that they had that there is significant upside risk still to inflation, which I thought was quite interesting. Headline inflation: we got the flash numbers earlier this week for April. Headline inflation ticked up to seven percent, I think, literally seven point zero year over year. Um, and then core, I think, ticked lower by by one tenth to five point six from five point seven. Uh, also, generally as expected, and those are still those are still big numbers. Obviously, yeah, they're, sure. they're big numbers, and uh, you know, to me, I would say a, a nominal rate of three and a quarter is just. I mean, I've said this a lot, uh, but I'll repeat myself because I think it's accurate. Three and a quarter is just not it's just not going to cut it um, to get. And this inflation is becoming structural at this point, and uh, you've got a pretty heavy union contingent in in Europe. Uh, these contracts are coming up now. People are trying to make up for lost time, whether it's nominal or real wages. They're big numbers. I mean, they're big numbers that are getting done, and that's going to feed back into wages and prices. And it's it's definitely becoming structural in my view. So I wonder uh, how that's you know how that's going to go. The market. Um, so we've been at three and three quarters for a few months here for terminal rate for the ECB. The market has flirted with that and come back off and flirted with it, come back off, come back to it again a lot, a lot of times, probably more times than I can remember. And uh, you know, I'm still comfortable at three and three quarters, which would basically have the ECB doing uh, presumably two by uh, 25 basis points at the next two meetings. But it's, it is gearing down a bit. I mean, the ECB had done some 75s, it had done some 50s, and it geared down again today to go from kind of doing 50 uh, hikes to, to 25. 
Um, and I think that's the MO going forward. It's getting closer to the end of its hiking cycle. And so now it's trying to find where that is. But in Lagarde, who is the president of the ECB, you know, said uh, herself, there's significant uh, upside inflation risks. And uh, there, there is there is more work to do. And she very much left the impression that there, um, there are more hikes uh, coming. I mean, obviously, there, there could be a, a a global banking issue, uh, a regional banking issue in in Europe, um, and that's possible. And the ECB's focus on that. It's clear that I mean the ECB's in a tough spot because it started late, and now it's got you know things happen when you start when you start late, and right. now you've got a um, you've got a credit report that comes that comes to the ECB once a quarter, and it came out on Tuesday a couple of days ago, and I would say that the 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 takeaway from that report is that credit conditions and credit standards are tightening at a faster pace in Europe than people expected. And I would say the ECB expected. So you have an ugly situation here evolving or emerging where inflation looks high and sticky. So that's not great from an inflation perspective. And the ECB is technically a single mandate central bank focused on prices only as opposed to the Fed. And so you've got Inflation looking sticky and high, and then you've got a, a kind of the big quarterly report on credit lending standards, and it's showing that things are tightening from a credit perspective quicker than you thought. And that that is not a great that is not a great situation to be to be in from a policy well from anybody's perspective, but from a policymaker's perspective. Right. So I think you know with the bank having started a bit late here, uh, and now at three and a quarter, it. It's going to be making some very difficult decisions over the next coming months uh, because right. they could be hiking into a an increasingly tighter uh, credit lending environment. I mean, that's kind of mm-hmm. obvious, but maybe at a higher delta credit tightening environment than they would have definitely than they would have liked, and definitely than they and and probably more than they expected. So that is um, that's challenging. So I still like this three and a quarter two by five, two sorry two by twenty five. Uh, by the ECB, and we'll see how things evolve, and we'll see if they want to put, you know, if they continue to emphasize their primary mandate, which is prices, or if the credit side and other things, and the growth side, ends up encapsulating or so much concern that you know it doesn't want to go. But I, you know, if inflation remains sticky even at four and a half or five percent. Uh, on a headline basis in Europe, to me, three and a half, three and three quarters on the deposit rate is probably is probably not enough. And I think this is really, really interesting for markets and for fixed income markets in particular, although all markets for sure. Um, but in my in my primary space, uh, fixed income markets, I think that's that's quite interesting. So I, I do think they will hike, barring some sort of banking accident, and I would expect uh, another one another one in June, and then probably another one in the summer, and we'll see. And obviously, I mean, to state the obvious, we'll see what happens with the Fed. But the Fed seems to have flipped a switch a bit, and the ECB seems to still be going. And part of that is right. just accounting because. You know, ECB started later, and it's at a lower rate. Sure. Obviously, the ECB was negative to start, and the Fed was not quite there. Uh, so now you have we're sitting here on you know today's recording, May fourth, and you you have a different bias between the Fed and the ECB. I mean, Bank Canada as well too. But you know, in this you know for this particular question, the Fed and the ECB have different biases here, right? The Fed 
might hike again, but it probably needs a reason to do so. And then Lagarde for the ECB today has effectively said, you know, we've got more work to do. So that right. has implications for, you know, all markets, um, you know, particularly my, uh, you know, in my in my space, primary space of, of fixed income. Well, maybe we can pivot to talk a little bit about uh, what trades you're you're thinking about in the portfolio, given everything that we've just gone through. Um, during the conversation, I picked up the idea of a steepening trade uh, that, you, that you, I believe, had in place. I think we talked about it the last uh, podcast, or you were certainly contemplating and looking at it closely. Yeah. Uh, in the U.S., we talked a lot about uh, uh, Japan during this time and, and perhaps some action uh, in July and then as well. Uh, in Europe, just the two by twenty-five. So, how how are you synthesizing all that yeah. in the context of a portfolio? Yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot going on. There's a lot to play for, and uh, I mean, these are these are challenging markets, but they are they are outstanding markets to trade from a macro perspective. Sure. I mean, yeah. you, as a macro, you know, as a macro strategist or macro trader, um, you, you, I mean, you you love these markets because there's so there's, it's so interesting. It's so dynamic. Um, and, and there's so much opportunity and there's so much alpha to be captured for clients. It's really, it's really, it's really quite, quite a great time to be in, in that space. So I, I mean, I, I definitely, I definitely enjoy it and, uh, it's, it's challenging, but, uh, but, but really interesting. I would say, I mean, geez, I mean, there's at least four interesting macro trades happening here. Um, the first, just, I mean, we've had the Japan trade on. We've talked about it a lot on these podcasts. Right. Had it on for over a year now, since April of '22. Um, you know, most of the time it's it's a nothing. Once in a while, it's amazing. Like December last year, once right. in a while, it's not great. Like r- earlier this year, and then a little bit last week at the meeting because things fell off a bit. But I'm still constructive on the trade. I still think that you know, and we're short we're short JGB futures, Japanese government bond futures, so prices lower, yields higher, and expect that you know. Uh, the yield curve control to to change for a lot of the reasons I outlined a couple of minutes ago. So that's kind of the that's the easy one to kind of get out of the way. We still we've had it on for a long time, and I, I, I still like it, and uh, I think most people on the team like it, and we still have it on. I would say in in size, um, and I think as I mentioned the last time, we've we've changed the lens with which we've looked at that trade. Before we kind of had we had the duration call for the overall portfolio, and then we had the JGB trade kind of. Not on the side, but so, somewhat, some, somewhat separately. Now I think we we kind of lump in. We do lump in the the JGB duration more as part of our what's our overall portfolio duration and and encapsulate that. So we we have been looking at that, and that's not a new thing. We've been doing that for a while here, uh, but we we look at that trade and kind of manage it. Uh, differently and are more more residual, more of our overall uh, duration exposure, um, you know, including the JGB exposure, and don't say you know everything. And then there's and then there's the JGB trade. So that's kind of the first one. The second one I like a lot. To your point a minute ago is the the steepener trade, particularly right. in the U.S. Canada too, to a point, but I, I'm I'm more confident about the U.S. steepener trade. I I like. Um, I like 530 steepener. So basically, five-year yields uh, will be will move lower uh, quicker mm-hmm. than than 30-year yields, and 30-year yields could actually move higher. It's a bit of a it's a bit of a debate. Um, but regardless, putting on the curve shape trade of a 530 steepener, I think, is really really interesting here. And we've been lagging into it uh, a little bit. I would say that uh, it's 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 definitely something the team spends a, a decent amount of time on and and is focused on. Not only from just the action, like the outright, uh, but also I would say just from a structural our entire portfolio. Just thinking about curve shape and how do we want to do things and how do we want to 
where do we want to invest on the curve across across assets or sub assets really within fixed income? Uh, you know, we 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 are thinking about that. I think more more and more. And the and the idea just quickly behind that obviously is that uh, at some point, I think particularly in twenty four, the Fed's going to have to ease pretty quickly. And uh, if the Fed goes higher for longer, then two, the two year yield may not be necessarily the best uh, the best place to um, the best place to hide out, but fives are generally a great spot to put in for the uh, for the for the for the remainder of the cycle. So I think that um, so I think that fives are a great are are a good spot. And uh, one thing we're thinking about on on the thirty year yield is or thirty year part of the curve is this idea that if inflation remains higher for longer, you know, do people want to hold fixed income? Because obviously inflation can kind of eat away at your at your nominal return. So what does that mean? And uh, and I think that's uh, I think that's a, that that's a bit of a concern for investors. So we like you know with the Fed kind of getting towards the end of the cycle, maybe at the end of its hiking cycle here, we'll see. Um, I, I think you know obviously we've been out of on on a flattener bias for a long period of time, but for the last little bit we've been uh, kind of. Looking at and legging into and small, I would say small size, the uh, the steepener trade, which I think's been really, which I think's, which I think is really interesting. The the third the third macro trade I like a lot is getting towards the end of the cycle on the Fed uh, and also in the EM space is capturing what I would call uh, I would call it receiving um, the the belly of the curve in a few uh, in a few EM sovereign names, particularly Brazil okay. and um, Mexico. So basically buying buying that and 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 uh, crystallizing high nominal uh, yields, but also capturing very good real uh, real yield capture. So for okay. example, the real yield in Brazil, depending on how you measure it, is around seven percent, seven hundred basis wow. points. I mean it's really quite uh, you know, it's quite it's quite attractive, and if you think that the dollar is going to be uh, weaker, uh, and you think that rates are going to come off here, that should be unless it's a unless it's a hard landing, that should be pretty constructive for EM on the margin. So, one trade we've been legging into here is receiving some Brazil sovereign paper and keeping the current uh, in local currency and keeping the currency open so you're you know you, you have you have risk on on the bond itself and then you have risk on the currency uh itself and that and that i think is a really interesting trait so we have expo- like i would say outsized exposure particularly in in mexico and brazil and and kind of trying to generate alpha on 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 real yield capture which i think is um which I think is really interesting, and then kind of the fourth big macro trade, um, which I kind of just mentioned a little bit, is um, getting towards the end of a dollar U.S. dollar bullish cycle. Um, and I think that the rate story and the Fed story somewhat somewhat plays into that. Um, probably the big a big driver, um, but I, I think that I think that the dollar story is uh, is very is very dollar selling story is is compelling here. I mean, obviously, we'll have to see what happens with the banking issue, and if there's a big period of risk off. I mean, I th- obviously, I think that I think that the dollar would be, you know, would be bid, um, and you know, and that and that theory would go by the wayside. But if that doesn't happen, I feel like we're getting, at least from a cyclical perspective, close to the end of that. Close to the end of that cycle, so there are there are, there are interesting trades 
in uh, in a few pairs from a dollar from a dollar perspective that I think are I think are good. I still like dollar yen lower from here. I think we can see 125 this year. That kind of backs into the BOJ view from a couple minutes ago. Um, and and uh, yeah, and I just think from a cyclical perspective, it's good. So we're going to be looking for good opportunities there uh, to be kind of to be short the dollar. Um, you know, but it's interesting. I think there's, I think there's, there are other trades for sure. I haven't really spent a lot of time on the domestic market on Canada, but I mean, I think there are interesting things happening kind of beyond those, those four real big, uh, those four big macro trades. So yeah, those are some of the things that, uh, we either have on, or we think are interesting, um, you know, throughout the portfolio, not only in, uh, kind of the global mandates and the unconstrained mandate, but also, um, also in our, our core and core plus, uh, mandates. Great. Well, Dustin, uh, this was a, a long one, but lots of content coming in. Uh, so I appreciate you taking the time, uh, sitting down, walking us through both uh, setting out the, your your view on what's to come uh, and what you're doing. With it. So I appreciate the time. Thanks very much for having me. It's great to be here. The content of this podcast, including facts, views, opinions, and recommendations, is not to be used or construed as investment advice and is not an offer or an invitation to buy or sell any security. The content of this podcast should not be relied upon for any purposes and McKenzie Financial Corporation is not responsible for any reliance upon it. This podcast includes forward-looking information that reflects our current expectations or forecasts of future events. Forward-looking information is subject to risks, uncertainties, and assumptions that could cause actual results to differ materially from those expressed herein. Our views are subject to change based on market conditions. Commissions, trailing commissions, management fees, and expenses may be associated with mutual fund investments. Please read the fund facts and prospectus before investing. The indicated rates of returns are historical annual compounded total returns, including changes to unit values and reinvestment of all dividends or distributions and does not take into account sales, redemptions, distribution, or optional charges or income taxes payable by any security holder that would have reduced returns. 